Welcome, welcome back to Power Surge. It's been forever. I'm Alex Epstein, joined by Stefan Hen. Stefan, welcome back. Hello from Germany. Oh man, I don't think we've done this in a month, maybe maybe more than a month. I've gotten a lot of complaints from people about the lack of power hour, the lack of power surge, which I'm happy that, that people like it. And I have to figure out exactly how to bring back uh, power hour. We've been doing a lot. So well, you'll see it in the form of, of the moral case for fossil fuels. Of course, order that from Amazon. Um, yeah, lots, lots of different stuff, but the, the obsessive focus has been all things book, including you know, writing it, final editing, uh, but also making sure everyone knows about it, which you can help with just by telling people. And moralcaseforfossilfuels.com is going up soon right now. You can use it as well. It, looks, uh, it links to Amazon. Anyway, but let's do some power surge, and, and I think we'll be able to do a bunch of these in the near future. All right, so first topic today. Lots of stuff has come up in the last couple of months while we've been away. Okay, so according to the National Center for Atmospheric Research, we could have forecast the pause if we had the right models back then. What's going on? Yeah, the center had a press conference, uh, I think it was last week. Um, they were promoting um, a paper called Progress on Decadal Climate Prediction by uh, Gerald Neal, um, and it was published in Nature Climate Change. And um, they were wondering um, whether they could have predicted the pause, which is uh, the lack of global warming in the recent 15 plus years, um, if they had the tools of today, which means the climate models that we are running today. Um, and they found that uh, they would likely have been correctly predicted the pause if today's standards of models would have been in place in earlier decades, which is sort of uh, an update on hindcasting, I would say. Yeah, hindcasting being uh, predicting something after it happens. Correct. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that this has taken, it's taken this long to come up with this rationalization. I mean, why wasn't, why hasn't this been, and why hasn't this been a continuous statement, right? What, if, uh, for instance, five years ago, why didn't they publicize that, given their advanced models, that it wouldn't be warming for the next five years? Yeah, I think in the scientific community, it's well established that the models, uh, or the earlier models, we don't know about the current models yet, um, have been very poor at predicting even short-term trends. Um, and apart from that is, of course, uh, you know, an environmental blogosphere, the climate change things in big newspapers and so on, which uh, always claim, you know, the warming didn't actually stop. And there's been a very long laundry list of uh, excuses, uh, the most prominent right now being the theory that all the heat energy went into, into the deep ocean layers, and uh, that's why we don't have any quote-unquote, global warming on the surface layer of Earth. And, um, yeah, they have, you know, many excuses. And um, the models, I think the main problem of the models is that nobody exactly knows all the details. So the model 
can get a number right in a short term maybe, but even then we are not sure whether or not they are correct in predicting long-term trends for all the climate uh, variables in all the you know local context. And that's that's what you can only see after decades of observation and comparing that with model output. Yeah, and I, I think it's safe to consider this pretty much a lie uh, in terms of, I mean, there's an obvious motivation for it. And if you even look at in, in the book, I have um, you know diagrams of what these models' predictions look like. And one thing you've pointed out to me is just how disparate they are. They're just radically varying. So you know, each one of them is on its face just a complete guess uh, of things. So I, you know, I'd imagine here they're just finding ones that were more that in retrospect were a better guess or a closer guess and saying, oh well this this is this is what we would have this is what we would have guessed. I but let's we were talking about this in advance. I think no matter what, this illustrates the lack of, of ethics because imagine that, um, I guess, why aren't... So we were told, we I, in the book I have a lot of quotes by people who said specifically in these decades, in these decades that have just transpired, we would have dramatic warming and that would lead to devastating climate change and millions or even billions of people would die. And we were told to adopt uh, anti-energy policies, you know, restrictions on fossil fuel energy that surely would have led to billions of people dying prematurely. So there's a certain amount of responsibility if in the name of, if, if the quote-unquote scientific community thinks that their views are being misrepresented or overhyped or the accuracy of their models are overestimated, they have a moral obligation to stand up and say something. So the, the fact that they haven't, and now you know the only time they're saying anything is to defend, is to in effect defend the legitimacy of the latest round of apocalyptic predictions by saying, oh, now they're based on good tools. They certainly didn't tell us they were based on bad tools before. So this, this shows how, um, how politicized things are. And it's how scientists, many, many scientists involved in this issue have just become a tool for an anti-energy agenda. Um, any more thoughts on your part? Um, yeah, I, I think there's, um, I mean, modeling certainly makes progress over time. And I have no doubt that there are a lot of people who you know, engineers, computer scientists, physicists, and so on, really try to improve the process and get a better model. And, um, you know, there are all kinds of government money incentives and so on. But the problem is that it seems like the quote-unquote scientific community uh, doesn't say, well, we were wrong back then. And uh, even if they themselves contradict themselves. So they confidently claim in like 1990 or 1995, um, well, we have these sophisticated models and we can make good predictions and we know what's up and action is required right now. And that's not a scientific statement by a scientist. A scientist would say, you know, according to the best method available right now, we uh, estimate that this might happen. And now this might be the consequences. And it's it's now seems like 
these quote-unquote scientists are politically motivated and they try to save the cause at any cost. And they, they are never wrong and they never will admit to be having been wrong in the past. And that's really unscientific and bad. I, I can live with, you know, bad science when it improves over time and says, okay, we've been wrong back then and now we'll, we have improved this way and now give us another chance at helping. But if they say we've been right all, all along um, and we never made any uh, any errors, but uh, we had to adapt, adapt the models, that's, that's not scientifically sound. Um, this is going to go into the next story. I notice how all the reaction as far as i've seen by the you know by the mainstream government funded scientists to the failure of their predictions is to look for other predictions that could have been made that would completely validate their underlying belief about how climate responds to increased amounts of, of co2 what people call climate sensitivity versus looking at ways in which they might be completely wrong about that issue. And that the, uh, you know, for instance, the whole assumption is, well, the in the last 15, 17, whatever years, um, natural cooling variability is responsible. But what about, what about if, if it's warmed slightly more than average in the previous 50 years, what about natural variability upward there? It's just that all these, all the assumptions are that, that, man must be making climate worse if you you know consider warming worse. It must be doing something bad. And then we try to explain, oh, this is how God, and in fact, God, the climate God decided to give us a little bit of reprieve, uh, but we're still going to hell. Yeah. Uh, so that, that goes into this idea on the next story, which has to do with an idea you might have heard from Bill McKibben. It's, it's very common, which is this, that as as it warms, uh, both we're going to get both more damage in terms of wetness in in the atmosphere and on the earth, and also more damage in terms of dryness. So what's going on here? Yeah, we've all I think heard the uh, the theme that climate gets more dangerous, and um, one way this is expressed. Uh, by climate advocates is that um, wet gets wetter and dry gets drier, which means like flooding areas will experience more floods and drought areas will experience more droughts. Um, and of course, uh, recently, you know, California and Washington state, uh, wildfires have been connected to that and so on. And uh, there's a new paper in uh, called Global Assessment of Trends in Wetting and Drying Over Land by Grief et al. And it has been published in Nature Geoscience. And um, I'll just quote from the, I think it's a conclusion. We find that over about three quarters of the global land area, robust dryness changes cannot be detected. Only 10.8% of the global land area shows a robust dry gets drier, wet gets wetter pattern, compared to 9.5% of global land area with the opposite pattern, that is, dry gets wetter and wet gets drier. We conclude that aridity changes over land where the potential for direct socio-economic consequences is highest have not followed a simple intensification of existing patterns. 
which means there's some variability, uh, but most of the surface or the land area on Earth does not follow the pattern. You know, you get global warming and then drier gets drier, wetter gets wetter. It's just not, as Bill McKibben stated, about simple physics. It's not simple, and it's not simple physics, and not everyone knows uh, any details about that. And that goes to the theme I often like to repeat. You know, it's not global climate that's uh, interesting. It's local climate that's interesting. You know, you can, with zero global climate change or average global climate change, you can get bad outcomes in your local area. And with... uh, a lot of climate change on the global scale, on the average, you can have little change in your local area. So it's very important to look at, at the local areas and at the details. And it's not about simple physics and not something global that you can average out mathematically and so on. And uh, this paper supports that view, I think. Well, I think this view is absurd on its face. I've just given a little bit of what you see in history of climate, but just also what just in general, this, this general narrative that as we put more CO2 into the atmosphere, everything is going to get worse. That's just the most implausible idea. If you're talking about a system, how could that possibly be that even, even if you were say, even if, even to say 80% worse would be an unbelievable pattern because you have it, 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 the, when you talk about local, you know, the way in which this manifests itself is simply the weather around you. How congenial is that? And of course, one of the themes we stress is that what really matters there is is the state of technology because that can make bad weather good. You know, what was one's bad weather good? I like to use the example of, you know, a thunderstorm that could kill you thousands of years ago can today be the, you know, occasion of a, a wedding, of a marriage proposal. And it can be, a, you know, romantic. Uh, but just this—it's—it's it's a very, um, you know, it's—it's it's a very religious type of view that we're going to do the wrong thing by the climate, and then the climate, as this collective uh, entity, is going to punish us. Versus, no, we're taking actions, and they're in a system, and they may have very minor or, or even more significant systematic consequences, but those are going to be manifested in all sorts of ways, some of which would, all things being equal, be positive, and all th- many of which would, all things being equal, be negative. Um, and it's, it's just a, a very unscientific uh, perspective. It's a, it's a fire and brimstone uh, perspective. All right, well, we are, we are running out of time. I'm going to try to keep these to 15 minutes. I think once we went an hour, so don't always succeed, but today we will. So, again, moralcaseforfossilfuels.com to sign up for the newsletter and to get Chapter 1. We will be releasing that this week. We had a snag last week. Go to um, no, go to industrialprogress.com, sign up for the newsletter, which is on the front page. And we should be back later this week. Plenty of other stuff to talk about, including Brazil producing more oil, not... Uh, not ethanol, uh, Great Britain showing what bad energy policy means by having energy rationing schemes, Uh, the CEO of Shell saying all the wrong things, and many more. So, Stefan, well, I'm not going to say good to talk to you again because we talk every day no matter what, but uh, 
good to have you back on the show. Yeah, good to have the show back. <laughs> good. Um, good to have the show back. That is true. All right, everyone. Well, I'm Alex Epstein. He's Stefan Hatton. This has been Power Surge.